Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this weekend. Thank you for joining us on a weekly basis. I trust you're enjoying the word that we've been sharing in this season. We have followed, of course, uh, the Christmas season, and this is the first of the year. We didn't do a lot of stuff uh, leading up to Christmas, but I was so moved by some thoughts that I had concerning the Christmas story that I came. I wanted to come back and share a few things during January because they're so relevant to us, not just in the Christmas season, but in the whole scope of God's purpose. He wanted to release something fresh in the earth, even in the midst of chaos. If you've missed any of these, uh, I, I encourage you to go back and watch them on our YouTube channel or to go over and listen to the audio portions of it on our uh, iTunes or the RSS feed for our podcast. And you can do that easily by going to the website and that address is on the screen. And in the upper right-hand corner of my website, there is a direct link to our YouTube channel, to the uh uh, podcast and also to an RSS feed so you can go back and literally listen to anything we have aired to date is archived there for your viewing pleasure. There's a host of, uh, of, of, of information on that website and, uh, and on that website, but also on our media outlets. We've been sharing a little bit about how uh, Luke was writing to the most excellent Theophilus to give him a a blow-by-blow, blow, if you will, uh, account of the things that had happened. And there was in that season a man by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth who'd been waiting on God for a long time. And there was a girl by the name of Mary and a young man by the name of Joseph who were spouses to be married. And for Elizabeth, God's timing was too late. For Mary, God's timing was too early. But for the timing of the Lord, it was right on time. You may think God has delayed, but His delayal is not denial. The promise of God in your life will be fulfilled. If God said it, He will bring it to pass. And sometimes even when you're in the midst of it, I want to just encourage you by showing you that not only does sometimes do we have a crisis of faith when there's delay, but even Zacharias in the temple had a crisis of faith when God promised him a son by the name of John. The scripture says, and the angel said to him, you will be muted and not able to speak until the time that this comes to pass because you didn't believe. Sometimes I think we can, I think sometimes it's good that God silences our speech because we can speak some negative things that can have some negative, you know, sometimes when you don't know what to say, it's best to not say anything at all. But you know what happened was that, you know, because, because I believe that our words have power. Our tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It can turn about things. It can turn things around in your family. It can take thir take thir turn, excuse me, turn things around in your own life. And it is something that I have to constantly discipline myself in is because sometimes I think, especially as you get older, you find it easy to complain about things. And, uh, you know, I, I catch myself saying things like I used to criticize older people for saying 
when I was younger and, uh, you know, could find myself criticizing and complaining about things. But what happens is our complaint begins to create an environment of unbelief. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the things that the Apostle Paul uh, warns the church at Corinth, he said, don't fall after the same example of unbelief. And it goes on to say, when the people murmured and snakes came among them. Because when you murmur, it creates an environment for snakes to operate. It gives demonic powers a place to function and create unbelief. So sometimes I think it's best if God can just silence our tongue. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to silence a whole lot of voices that have been declaring the wrong thing. Because even in the midst of chaos and Roman occupation and being carried away slaves into a strange land, God shows up on a scene to a man and a woman who thinks God's promise has been delayed and He shows up to another man and a woman who thinks God's promise is too early and begins to declare to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, you're going to give birth to a son whose name is John which means love and grace. You're going to give birth to a son. And until you know what to call this baby, Zechariah, I'm going to silence your tongue because you're not going to name this baby Zechariah Jr. If you go back to last week's prophecy or last week's uh, program, you'll see me talk about this in great detail because they kept saying, there's nobody in your family by the name of John. Why would you call him John? Because Elizabeth said, his name shall be called John. And then they brought him a parchment and a piece of paper to write it on and Zechariah declared his name will be called John. I believe God is going to loose the tongues then of a priesthood in this hour who are not going to declare doom and despair and agony on me and the sky is falling, but somebody that's going to declare hope in the midst of a day uh, when it doesn't seem like there is any hope, when it looks like God has delayed His promise concerning His people. You know, I think of uh, Zechariah declared that he said, Return to me, you prisoners of hope. Because of the blood of the covenant, I will bring forth your prisoners out of a pit wherein there's no water. I believe that there's a return to hope that we must declare to the people of God so that faith begins to arise. And as a people of God, corporately, we begin to believe God for a change to come. And God loosed the tongue of that priest by the name of Zechariah and said, His name is not going to be called after the name of anybody else in the family. This is a new thing that God is giving birth to. We're going to call His name John. And then he began to prophesy concerning uh, the ministry of John, and he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, begin to talk about how he would prepare the way for Messiah. And then, of course, we see in Luke chapter 2, it begins to open. And this story to me is very precious because my father, who has gone on to be with the Lord several years ago, and my mother, who passed away over a year ago, would be every Christmas time we would come together. And before we would ever open a package, my father would always read this scripture, and we would always almost laugh at him because he would always mispronounce uh, the words and he would say there went out a degree from Caesar in August and we would laugh among ourselves and say I wonder if Caesar is going to get his degree again in this August but that's not how it is. But this story is precious to me because it always reminds me of the many years of great times we had together as a family. But uh, I want to begin to read this story because there's such powerful overtones so I think some things we can draw from it today. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be taxed. And that uh, and this 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 taxing first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and so all went to be registered, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Now let me just stop and tell you that uh, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now let me just tell you that, again, Favor doesn't always look like favor. This, this is so spoken to me in this season because God appears to Mary before He appears to Joseph. You'd have thought maybe He'd have done it while they were together or something because this is a hard story to buy into if you were not there present at the time. But the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says, Hail, thou that art highly favored. And He begins to prophesy to her and said, You're going to bring forth a son. His name will be called the Son of the Highest. And it's going to be, uh, his name will be great, and, 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 and continues to give the prophetic word to Mary concerning the birth of this child. But here's the thing that really hit me. Favor doesn't always look like favor, because the moment God declared to her, you are highly favored, it looked like her world began to fall apart. Have you ever received a prophetic word from the Lord and it seemed like everything God just said, almost the exact opposite comes to pass? No wonder Paul said, take the word of the Lord and use it to fight the fight of faith because sometimes faith is a fight. Sometimes you've got to remind yourself of the promise of God. And sometimes when you're walking through situations, see, we know the end of this story and how favor ultimately plays out. But they didn't know the end of the story. They're walking through the details of people rejecting them and saying that this is an illegitimate child. It was born out of wedlock. And the embarrassment of Joseph, who's found with a supposedly virgin girl who is pregnant out of wedlock and and, and like Mary of I have seen people in the midst of this season, even ministries in what they call deconstruction, to, to deconstruct to the point where they've literally walked away from the faith and begin to question everything and can question. But see, I think sometimes there comes moments of crises of faith when we're much like Joseph. We're thinking about putting her away privately. I forget the statistics I saw the other day of how many ministries have literally left the ministry during this time of pandemic because of the pressures that is on ministry. Listen, we all, I, 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 it, it just really frustrates me when I, I see things that people post about, you know, that are constantly criticizing preachers and they're greedy and this and the other thing, they ought to work and they ought to do this. And listen, I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of bivocational pastors out there, but I'm going to tell you something. If, you set, if you've ever been raised in the home of a pastor, you've ever been around a pastor, you realize this is a 24-7, 365 job, and those that are blessed ought to be blessed, and I, I begrudge them of nothing. But I want to tell you that a whole lot have almost left the ministry because no matter what you do these days, 
It seems like we call evil good and good evil, but it doesn't seem matter what you do, somebody's not happy with you. Should we wear a mask? Should we not wear a mask? Should we social distance? Should we not use social distance? Should we uh, close the services? Should we keep our churches open? Uh, if you close it, you don't have any faith. If you do, uh, if you do, uh, you know, if you do uh, stay open, uh, then you don't care about people. In other words, there's constant opinions. We are constantly halted between opinions. And we've got people's opinions everywhere to try to deal with. And I don't blame some of them that are like Joseph, put her away privately and say, you know what? I've just had it. I'm done with it. I'm talking to somebody today. I don't know why I even chased this rabbit, but I feel like I'm talking to some pastors and some leaders where you've been thinking about putting her away privately, not to make a public spectacle, but you're just done with it. And there's struggles in your own life, and you're tired of the, the scandal that goes along with preaching grace and the scandal of grace. You're trying to preach favor in the midst of favor. It don't look like favor. People are sick and they're dying and things are going on. Can I tell you, hold on. The angel of the Lord said to Mary, thou art highly favored, even when favor doesn't look like favor I believe that God is going to come to some real men and women of God in this hour who are discouraged, who are thinking about walking away, not just from ministry, but walking away from the things of God. I believe I'm talking to people even right now who have thought about walking away from the things of God. You know, during this pandemic, as people have migrated away from uh, being in service, it seems like there's this uh, waxing cold. Once you get in the habit of not coming, it's like you get, you know, you, you start falling away. But I got to tell you that there's something about the corporate gathering. It's just like, uh, you know, when Zechariah went in to offer incense and outside the temple, people were praying at the hour of the incense. In other words, and it says, as was his custom. Uh, it also talks about Jesus when he got ready to preach his first public message. He went to the synagogue as the first day of the week every week, the first day of the week, as was His custom. There are some traditions that to me are still good. And I'm not trying to, to put pressure on anybody to do anything that they don't feel comfortable with. If you're, uh, you know, if you're, uh, again, you know, volatile to the virus and you feel like you can't go around, you know, other people, then I understand that completely. But I can tell you this, if you're going to entertainment venues, you're going to Walmart, you're going out to eat, you're doing everything else, you can get back in the house of God where there's some, there's some presence of God that's being ministered there. But here's what I'm after is I think people have become discouraged because we don't really realize how much support is in the corporate gathering where we can encourage one another, provoke one another to love and to good works. And I think there's a lot of people who have felt like, you know, uh, and especially as we have uh, seen such a shift in the understanding of the gospel, we're coming to understand the good news, we're coming to understand favor. And some of us are beginning to realize for the first time, a whole lot of my young life, I was taught some stuff that just wasn't true. Now, I'm not criticizing those who taught us because they did the best they could with what they knew. But nevertheless, we're coming to revelations of the goodness of God, and it's almost like, uh, you know, you want to turn on and attack what you came from. And, and I understand that feeling completely. 
And some people are just ready to throw in the towel completely. Satanists don't believe anything anymore. Can I tell you that's kind of the crisis of faith that might have been going on here? We, we see the end of the story because we read the book and we know that Jesus is going to become the ultimate Savior of the world who Mary is going to see how favored she was to bring forth the son of David. But even in the prophetic word about he will sit on the throne of David, people have a misunderstanding of how that would come about. They thought he would lead a revolt against the Romans, overthrow the Romans, sit on the throne of David, and it would be the, the glory days of King David. But his kingdom was a different kind of a kingdom. It was not going to come with military might and power and with the power of the sword. As a matter of fact, when he talks in Matthew 11, he said, up until John the Baptist, he said, all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. It culminated with John. And up until then, violent men seized the kingdom by force. But he went on to say that the kingdom is not going to come through violence and that he, what he was telling them is that that culminated with John. We, we preach that like it's something we need to do in this. Say, Come on, folks, let's get violent. Let's take the kingdom by force. Let's storm the gates. But, but that's not, he's, he, in the very last verse of Matthew 11, he says to them, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, walk with me, work with me, see how I do it. I'll teach you the unforced rhythm of grace. So he's saying that the kingdom is not going to come the way they thought it would. In other words, we look at stuff sometimes through our paradigms of what we think we know. And I can tell you as a scholar of the word, I am always a work in progress. I'm a student long before I'm a teacher. And I encourage my students to think for yourself. If you don't like my thoughts, have some of your own. But all I can do is share with you what I think God is saying to me. And as we start to progress and move, I think what happens is, is you've got to look at this thing and say, you know what? Just like the time of Mary and Joseph, it was a time when all the world was being taxed. Now, let me say to you that to me, taxing time is not just financial, although that's there too for us. I mean, uh, with inflation like it is, taxes bound to go up and all the stuff that is going on in our world, it's taxing time. All the world, not just the United States, but all the world is being taxed. But as I look at this taxing time, what happened in the midst of taxing time? When it's taxing time, God was about to give birth to something that would change the course of human history. Now, I believe we're standing in one of those seasons again when in the time of taxing, God is shifting our thinking. But what happened at taxing time was it created an environment to force Joseph and Mary to leave Galilee and the city of Nazareth into the city and to Judea, to the city of David, to Bethlehem. In other words, what happens during taxing time is it forces you to leave where you're at and go to Bethlehem. Do you know that the word Bethlehem means the house of bread? If there's ever a time, we need to be in the house of bread. And as a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, we need to, as leadership, be serving bread and wine. The one thing that a priesthood must do in this hour 
is serve bread and wine. What's bread and wine? That's more than just the communion of the physical elements, but it is this bread is my body, which was broken for you, and this blood is the new covenant. In other words, we preach the new covenant and we serve a steady diet of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is time to go to the house of bread and feed on the true bread of heaven. So in the midst of taxing time, it drove them into the city of David, Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. The second thing taxing time will do to you is bring you to a revelation of your true identity. Now let me tell you, your true identity is not who you think you are in Adam, it's who you are in Christ. Because right now, what I believe the uh, mandate of the Spirit is, is to get God's people to arise and start to function and operate in their kingdom identity and who they are in Christ as a chosen generation and as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation that what ought to be happening with the church right now is not that we keep on crying, the sky is falling, but what we start to do is we start to arise as a priesthood with some answers and serve some bread and wine to a world who is desperately looking for some hope. Listen, whoever controls the media is usually controlling the minds of the people. But you're looking at a camera, or I'm looking at a camera right now, and you're watching a television set. And what this ought to do is help you shift the dynamic of how you think. Because if you flip this channel in any direction, you're probably going to find a lot of bad news. But I'm going to serve you bread and wine. I'm going to tell you this is his body. It was broken for him. And it, the, the blood of the covenant is come that he would come and declare favor to you. When the Spirit of God came on Mary, she said, Behold, I bring you great tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. But in the time of taxing, it drove them to the house of bread. It drove them to the house and the place where they would find their lineage as the royal seed of David and their identity and who they were to bring forth what God was calling for in that hour uh, for what was happening in the earth. So it was that when while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now let me just let me read you something that I, I researched. I found on the internet that I, I found an article about this end. It was actually from the Tower of the Flock, that uh, a, a prophecy from Micah. But this is a, an author that was reading something concerning a time when he had been in, in, uh, in Israel. He said, I was able to visit Israel many years ago, and many of my favorite pictures that I have from the experience is of myself holding a baby lamb at Migdal Eder, better known as the Tower of the Flock, or the Shepherd's Fields in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the royal city of David, so named because David took the fort and the watchtower of the Jebusites on what was known as Mount Zion in Bethlehem and dwelt in it, in First Chronicles 1, chapter 11, verse 7. Migdal Eder was the shepherd's field, or the tower of the flock, is the traditional place where the royal flocks were therefore raised and cared for in ancient times. The watchtower was used by the shepherds for the protection from their enemies from wild beasts, and in this sheltered building, which was once the royal compound of David, shepherd priests would bring in the news which were about to bring forth their lambs. These special lambs became part of the unique temple flock used 
for the continual burnt offering made at the temple and represented the price paid for Israel's redemption from sin. The Jewish Mishnah confirms that animals raised near the tower were indeed used for temple sacrifices. Migdal Eder lay close to the temple in the land of Jerusalem in the hamlet of Bethlehem, which was translated means the house of bread. Depending on which of the three possible areas today you think was original Migdal Eder, it was no more than a mile or two miles from Jerusalem. One of the priest's duties was to verify that the lambs were in conformity with the law and were they to be used in such a setting. They had to be without blemish, with no bones having been broken during their birth thereafter, and without any defect. It was also their job to swaddle the newborn lambs in linen when they came forth to clothe them in white. The shepherds who kept them were men who were specifically trained for the royal priestly task. In other words, they wrapped them in swaddling clothes to protect these lambs who were destined for sacrifice from being uh, without blemish or a broken leg because it, it had to be a spotless lamb. That's why Jesus was born in this manger. It was not just a general barnyard thing like we see on many of the Christmas settings. He said, I believe it was to this place that Joseph took Mary when they discovered that the end was full. It was in this special stable of Migdal Eder, Bethlehem, the tower of the flock, that Christ was born. Why would they have gone there? Could any Israelite simply seek shelter at a royal and traditional sacred campground? Joseph's ancestral lineage is found in Matthew 1, 6-16. Mary is normally understood to be represented in the last half of Luke 3. What do their genealogies indicate? That both were descendants of King David. Staying in the royal compound of Migdal Eder was probably not a hospitality offered to everyone in Israel, but for Mary and Joseph it was their right because they were the seed of David. Many have dramatized the nativity to show that them going from door to door only to finally encounter one grumpy old innkeeper not completely indifferent to the couple's pregnancy or plight, heartlessly painting around the backstory with the various animals uh, there. Centuries of poetic license have been misleading. A close reading of Luke 2 shows that there was no uh, uh, no justification for this narrative. It simply says, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Even more evidence to support this theory comes from the annunciation made of an angel who shortly thereafter announced the birth to the shepherds nearby. The angel only told the shepherds that they would find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I find it interesting that there was no need for the angel to give the shepherds further direction to the birthplace, especially when there could have been dozens of mangers within a mile of wherever they were tending sheep. Why was this simple description enough? Because these men were the shepherds. That uh, uh, shepherd's priest who raised sacrificial lambs to the temple when an angelic announcement came, they knew exactly which manger it would be. Uh, their manger would be at the tower of the flock. They immediately said, "Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us." Now, did they know it was near Bethlehem? Why not a manger in Jerusalem? How did they find such with such haste? You cannot explain the meaning of this direction sign that they were given, nor their response, unless you have uh, the right manger and. The the right shepherds at Migdal Eder or at the tower of the flock. And he was born in this very birthplace where thousands of lambs were birthed for the sacrifice. And you'll find the scripture for that in the book of Malachi, or not Micah, where it says in chapter 8, I believe, verse number thou, chapter 4, verse 8, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall come the first dominion. So he begins to quote Micah. We're out of time. I, I, I can't go any further, but that just to show you that Jesus was born not just in any place, but in the place of sacrifice. 
Thank you for joining us this week. If you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, just go to the website. There's a place where you can give. There's a link there. We can give via credit card or PayPal. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled, The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.